Hello and welcome to the Divine Renovation Podcast, where we seek to inspire and equip you to bring your parish from maintenance to mission. My name is Dan O'Rourke, and I'm in studio today with a few friends. It's good to see you, Ron Huntley. Good to be here. So good to see you. It's been a while since you and I've been in studio together, so it's fun when we get to hang out it's this true. way. It's true, yeah. And I've also got Father James Mallon. Father James. It's great to be back. It is wonderful to be with you. And today, we have a guest. We have a very special guest, Sister Nula Kenny. So thank you so much for being with us. Now, before before I let you, you say hello to our audience, I just wanted to, to, to share just a bit about who you are, because uh, we could probably spend the first 20 minutes of this podcast <laughs> sharing exactly who you are. Um, you've got just so many accolades, but you are a, a sister of charity, a pediatrician, uh, an internationally recognized medical educator and bioethicist, a professor emeritus at Dalhousie University right here in Halifax, as well as the author of hundreds of papers and several books. And your latest book is entitled Still Unhealed, Treating the Pathology in the Clergy Sexual Abuse Crisis. So thank you so much for being with us, sister. I'm very grateful for the invitation. Uh, so today we were gonna we're gonna deal with a, a, a challenging topic, but an important topic, and it comes right out of uh, out of your most recent book. But frankly, it's a reflection of a lot of your work in your mm-hmm. life, and it's also something that Father James you touched on in in your first book, Divine Renovation. Uh, in fact, you have a whole uh, a chapter that that speaks to it, which is the chapter House of Pain, when talking about how we can't be a right church uh, when we just have uh, an expression or we just appear to be correct, uh, and and so we've got a lot of the, the correctness in, in in but not not a healthy the heart. Yeah, the external form, you know, that's the age-old critique of mm-hmm. religion, going back to what Jesus said, you know, he had some pretty scathing words about that dynamic. So look, Sister Nula, this is a, a, um, a challenging topic and one a lot of people wouldn't really want to dive into, but you you, you have. Help me understand, what, what, what drew you into, into engaging in this topic? Well, actually, uh, it, it's part of my vocation call in that uh, I was given in, in a teaching congregation uh, the, the, the ability to pursue medicine as my ministry. I'm the only doctor in the Sisters of Charity of Halifax. And more importantly, I was able to pursue the ministry of pediatrics. So the beginning of my involvement uh, in child physical and sexual abuse comes from my being a pediatrician. Uh, and you need to, this is an important historical thing, that when I graduated from medical school in 1972, We were only beginning in North America to understand the harms of physical and then sexual abuse Mm. that had happened throughout human history. Mm. It has always happened everywhere in every culture, uh, but it was not recognized for the magnitude of the Mm. damage. So during the time I was training in pediatric residency, this issue began to emerge and was of, of concern to me. But my specific involvement, linking my call as a religious in the church, and you need to understand, Elizabeth Seton's, Mother Seton, we're a Seton congregation, were be children of the church. I take that very seriously. So here my ministry is to children. Our foundress says be children of the church. And I'm suddenly confronted with the emergence of abuse by first religious in North America and then priests, beginning in the 1970s, right as at the time that I'm finishing uh, my pediatric residency training. So my formal involvement came a few years later when I was back in, in just, just returned to Halifax, Nova Scotia, 
as professor of pediatrics at Dalhousie and chief of the children's hospital here. I was here just a few months. I got a call. My secretary said, Sister, New she called me Dr. Kenny, but Dr. Kenny, the Archbishop <laughs> of Newfoundland is on the line. Now, I had worked with our Archbishop here in Halifax on all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Archbishop Alphonsus Petty was on the phone himself from Newfoundland where this crisis had erupted. Big time in Louisiana in the United States, and, and big time, first at Mount Cashel Orphanage, mm-hmm. in, and, and that was religious Irish Christian brother abuse, and then a number of priests being involved. So the, 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 the question was, the bishop is on the end of the line. He said, Sister Nula, you're a pediatrician. I need you to come and participate to help me and our church understand what has just happened here, why has it happened, and what can we do to prevent it? Well, I remember I was uh, 19, 20 years old when, when that broke, and I, like, the, the, I can't describe the shock, you know, because in Canada, the, the Newfoundland experience for us was, if anyone's listening from from the U.S., what you went through in Boston, yes. Newfoundland was ours. And, and uh, it was, the trauma was, was huge because I remember as a, as a 19 or 20-year-old, I had just made a decision that I, I wanted to go, to go in the seminary. I remember riding on a, on a bus and hearing the bus drivers making jokes about priests. It was just, mm. it shattered the world. It yep. was like, like, how could this ever, how, it was, anyway, it was, it and, was huge. It was huge And, for and us. Father James, just, just put this in perspective. Boston happened in 2002. Mm-hmm. And there are many people who, in fact, when you read histories of this, particularly, I'm an American by birth, Canadian by adoption, so I'm an equal opportunity Ooh. critic. <laughs> <laughs> but there are people who would propose that the, this became a, the public revelations of this abuse became a crisis in 2002. I'm telling you, we were called in 1988 <laughs> in Newfoundland, and we had published, and the Canadian Conference of Bishops had published. So the issue was devastating and, and, but that it was over 20 years earlier and the in patterns, Newfoundland. The patterns in Newfoundland, when but the Boston thing came out, they were identical. The, pat, the patterns in Ferns, Ireland, in Melbourne, Australia, in the Bayou of Louisiana, in Boston, downtown Boston, Massachusetts, uh, and in Newfoundland, exactly, exactly. the same. Yep. Because that, you'll see as we begin to talk about this, this began to demonstrate... As I entered into this, I'm a, di- I'm a diagnostician as a doctor. I try to figure out what what's going on. If you got a really sick patient, you, you bring. Yeah, that's what I did. Um, so the issue is, why is there a pattern that transcends mm. Mm. Co- local, cultural, regional b- boundaries, and it related to the culture of the church? But 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 let me just say this: when when I, when the bishop called me, Archbishop called me. He was really responding to some kind of an amazing call of the Spirit because the document, and folks here around the table, <laughs> uh, this, this is the published document in 1990. So those who are listening, it's a, it's a large, hardbound book. <laughs> right. What I want you to, to know, because this becomes re- really important, as I know you want to talk about other things, but you need to hear this story from me. This and what we published is, land, is a landmark, recognized now as a landmark document. Because the second volume of this, which is twice the, the size of this big report, reviewed what was known at that time. Mm. Remember, 1988. This thing is only emerging mm. in the pediatric and child psychology, child psychiatry mm. world 
in, in the previous 10 years. We did a review of what was known, and then a, a particular attempt at reviewing was anything known about clergy abuse. Virtually nada, nothing. Wow. It, it was, it, you, you couldn't find things. So there's another published document. So that was a brilliant move to do, and I'm an academician, so I understand that. But I'm a baby doctor. I need you to, 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 to just let me tell one little story, which is why I'm still at this, Father James. When mm. you, you, mm -hmm. You've asked me this more than once. Well, you just asked the, the, the same <laughs> question at the beginning. When we went to Newfoundland, there were two priests incarcerated in the Dorchester Penitentiary and the Sex Offender Unit. Like, we, I, I had to go on behalf of the commission to visit them. That's another story we may get to or not. But... We decided, under the leadership of an Anglican, whoa, brilliant move, brilliant move. It wasn't a Catholic bishop that was doing this inquiry for Archbishop Penny. He appointed the former lieutenant governor of Newfoundland and Anglican, Gordon Winter, Christian gentleman of the First Order. Mm -hmm. We had one priest, a great dear friend of mine, five of us. We decided two things. We would pursue this academic, what, what do we know about this? Yeah. But Gordon said, we have to go and listen to the people who have been hurt. And I can still remember, I just looked in, in, the, in the report last night for the date. We got on a school bus, a you know, yellow school bus, the five commissioners, the lawyer, and our three support people, and went from St. John's to the Burren Peninsula, which is one of the outport areas where Father James Hickey, a fixed sexual predator in that category of offender, who was in Dorchester, had offended, uh, legally proven for, against over 40 boys, and over time, probably more like 120. And these victims were all male. Mm -hmm. But what I want you to know is we went to the church hall. Mr. Winter had said we would just listen Whatever they wanted to say to us, we would be up there to listen to their pain. So we're on the stage, standing room only. People, people were out, 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 out the doors. And I'll just describe this. I still see it regularly when I visit this topic. He was in the third row on the right. A, a, a grovelly-looking, obvious f fisherman with hard work mm. stood up and was pointing at us as, as we sat there, trying patiently and compassionately to listen. He said, I want you to know this. And he had his Newfoundland accent. I won't attempt it. From the day that I heard that that devil James Hickey offended against my darling Johnny. Now, this was an uncle who was a bachelor in a big family, and John was the favorite nephew, very close, very close, mm. uh, like a son to, to this bachelor. From the moment that I heard that that devil hickey offended against my darling Johnny, I need you to know that I have not stepped inside a church and I have not once talked to God. I thought I was going to die. My heart was so crushed because I wanted to run down to him and say, 
look, I understand your pain over the horrible thing that has happened to this boy, but this is the time when you most need God, Mm -hmm. not the time to turn away from God. So whenever I get kind of, "Ah, I can't do it anymore, just as Father James said, because I've had dark nights of the soul, this is over 30 years, Mm -hmm. I just think of that man and I think, thank you for all of the people who have spoken to me to share their pain, because now I have an obligation. I have an obligation I cannot, I cannot not do mm. to work on this issue. So that's why I do what I do. Well, well, I know for me, sister, that's so powerful. Thank you for sharing. I know that Mount Cashel thing as a layperson was the very issue that, as I watched it on the news, this, this man who was, a, who was uh, a victim was lost his court case and was going to take it to the Supreme Court. And I just happened to be eating supper and watching it by myself. And the, uh, the interviewer said, you know, Mr. So-and-so, what is it that you hope to accomplish by taking this to the Supreme Court? And she put the microphone in front of his face. He just looked like a defeated human being, just right. a shell of a man. And he, and he looked up and he just said, I just want somebody to say I'm sorry. Right. And I... My heart just split into, I thought, what kind of an organization do I belong to that we're going to hide behind lawyers and PR people and not bring this to the truth? What would Jesus do? And I guarantee you, it wouldn't be hide. He would defend that man with his life, and he did. And I thought to myself, in that moment, though, I wrote a letter to the bishop. And when I signed it, I said, if there's anything I can do, let me know. And I signed Ron Huntley. And as soon as I did, it was like I saw Jesus' face right before mm-hmm, me, mm-hmm, battered mm-hmm. and bruised with the thorns on his head. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me right in the eye with clear eyes. And he said, Ron, what have you ever done? Didn't say it judgmentally, but he said, Ron, what have you ever done to build up my church? And I realized I was part of the problem with my apathy and my lack of engagement and involvement in the church. What have I ever done to support priests? What have, And I realized from that moment mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm. I will never be a part of the problem again. And that changed my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, absolutely. So, so just uh, when you said that, Ron, um, in, the, in this series of, it, it, both in, in my books. Mm-hmm. So remember, I, my first book was in 2012. And w- w- as we talk later, it's very interesting. That book in 20, why I wrote it, why I thought that, uh, that it mm-hmm. needed to be written, why, after all his early work, I just assumed that we told we told the bishops what needs to be worked on. I just assumed they were going to work on it. And then nice. I went, went ahead and did my pediatric career until Raymond Lahey, now now defrocked former bishop of, of Antigonish, our, our, our neighboring diocese, uh, was arrested for child pornography. That That's when I got back into it. So my first book in 2012 was written right after that. But here we are. Seven years later, and it, this, that book was Healing the Church, Diagnosing and Treating. This is still unhealed because it goes on and on. But every single run, every single work that I do, every talk that I do mm-hmm. starts with, and as we go on, if we do more video, etc., I have a picture of Jesus and the little children. And what, what did Jesus say? Mm-hmm. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. This is the gentle Jesus. Right. This is, yeah, this is your hippie Jesus. This, this, but this, this is the Jesus who to children, when the apostles were saying, come on, get the kids out of the way. Get, come on, important people have to come see the healer. 
Jesus said, get out of the way. Get out. Come on, let the kids come. Mm-hmm. He gave them good touch, healing touch, loving touch. Okay? I mean, he, he in fact, said, unless we become like them, and not meaning immature, but innocent in the trusting that others would care for them, trusting in the power of God. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus says this, mm-hmm. this is about as tough as you can get because if, if there's ever a test of are we disciples of the healing and reconciling Jesus who came to show the infinite love of God, especially for the vulnerable, this is a challenge. So, Sister this Nula, cast your eyes back uh, to, to, to some of your early involvement and, the, you know, the results of, of your report. Uh, surely, you know, the, the, the church acted to address some and, and solve some of these issues right away. Surely they did. <laughs> Are you, that seems sorry, pretty provocative. I, could, I, I, didn't, I didn't know if there was a question mark. In there. I'm trying to get you going. <laughs> well, well, I think this is exactly the issue. Going back to what did we say about culture? That transcended culture? We said that earlier. Because well, let, me, let me just read just a t- it's two lines. So this is 1990. Okay. All right. Why it happened. This is the Newfoundland Inquiry chapter on why it happened. The commission's examination of the nature of child sexual abuse, profile of offenders, characteristics of victims, and the history of the operation of the church has led it to conclude that no single cause can account for the sexual abuses which are the subject of our inquiry. All those folks who want a single little answer, right. nice little let's scapegoat homosexuals, let's scapegoat... Uh, not married uh, priests. Uh, so. Mandatory celibate. It's not that any or all of those factors don't play a role, but to scapegoat them, yes. and this is where you see as a doctor, misdiagnosis is deadly. Misdiagnosis mm. is very scary. But what we say then is, this, this is 1990 we're saying this, rather it's the commission's view that a combination of factors... Yes coincided to allow the abuses to occur. Some of these were direct, such as the regressed sexuality of the offenders, their access to children, and the powerful a status accorded to priests within the patriarchal church community. Others were indirect and worked in less obvious ways, some to protect the offenders and to inhibit public acknowledgement of the offenses. Mm. And then we go on to say each of these needs further study. Mm. We said that again and again and again. So we identified issues, and that's why when I, I didn't know if you were really asking me a question. <laughs> the, reason I'm fr- the reason I'm still at it is because, is because, despite the fact, and the Canadian church has been stellar in naming the issues, We've, we've done it repeatedly. We've done it in the most recent uh, 2018 new Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. Still saying, look at these underlying factors, but we haven't done it. So now let me, let me tell you why I think we haven't done it, and I'm, I'm going to be a doctor again. When you say well, we haven't done it, we haven't done what? We haven't looked at the underlying yes. factors, yes. James. We haven't looked at the underlying factors. So well, I'll, I'll say this again, but let me say it now because of your question. <laughs> We have done, because you've asked me that, what have we done well? What have we done yeah. right? We have done policies, protocols, and the promotion of 
of safe environments, ministry environments, out the yin-yang. And Holy Father Pope Francis, whom I love dearly, okay, few things I want to nudge him on, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he understands the magnitude of the, pro he, has, he has an understanding here that is phenomenal about the church and the temptations of the church. But what, what, what I want to say is what we, what we saw is that as we dealt with this issue, we named these issues, but we haven't yet acted on them. We've done the policies, protocol, safeguarding. In the philosophy sense, so I hang around with philosophers doing ethics, and, right? <laughs> policies, protocols, reporting, monitoring, these are necessary but not sufficient. Amen. To deal with the issue. It's simply, it's the, it's the tip of the iceberg. What? They deal with what's above the water. They don't deal with what's Absolutely. below the water. Amen. We say, and again, I got it. Our, our, our Bishop Anthony Mancini chaired the revision that we just worked on. And I, I was advisor to that one, the CCCB 2018 safeguarding document. And we say there again, we say there again, that it is an obligation to look at the underlying this is the culture. Mm. Policies, practices, beliefs, and relationships in the church that would have fostered either the abuse itself, so inappropriate formation of priests, inappropriate support of priests, or the profoundly inappropriate response. So that all that becomes uh, part of the uh, and, and the fact issue. is, I, I'm thinking, Ron, the similarities between the the coaching pyramid that we mm. look at in terms of of parish renewal. Because in in parish renewal, people often come to us, and what do they want to talk about? What are your policies and procedures? What what are the things you do? And we're saying, okay, that's good. It's good to have good tools and use them properly, and to have a good plan, but. We primarily work with what's under the surface. And under the surface, you're talking about your leadership. You're talking about your culture. Your character. And your character. And, and the truth is that the, we had a culture of this. And it sounds horrible to say it. How can a, any organization, let alone a church, have a culture of, of, of abuse of minors? We did. And I can say that. Although it was, it was a hidden one because it was tolerated. Correct. There was a toleration. And culture is shaped by what you celebrate. We certainly, we certainly wasn't celebrated. But culture is shaped by what you tolerate. If you tolerate it, it, it grows and, become, and becomes a thing, mm -hmm. even though it may be hidden. Right. So taking these last couple of comments, let me... I, in, I interrupted my own. I interrupt myself all the time. <laughs> it's rude, but I do it. I continue to do it. <laughs> I was trying to show you the power of a medical metaphor to get at why is it... I'm still... At, I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to... I'll answer you. Come on. I'll get, I'll get there. <laughs> why is it that we could name these issues again and again and again and not do them? In other words, not look at these underlying issues. So let me give you an example from medicine. Everybody knows there's acute illness. Mm -hmm. You're well, something happens. Trauma, car accident, uh, acute infection. You have chronic illness. You have a diagnosis and it goes on and on and it affects you over time. But many people uh, would have heard of epidemic I mean, you could have an epidemic of flu virus. You can have an epidemic, right? Measles. That's we're having right. a measles outbreak right now. Um, what people don't hear of is the 
profoundly important notion of endemic disease. Endemic? Endemic. Okay. All right, so medical metaphor. Think, and this won't stretch anyone's imagination, in your mind now, see the last time you saw on television an advertisement for SOS Children's Villages, Chalice, Chalice, uh, mm-hmm. Father's work here in, uh, from, uh, from our diocese. Children, I mean, when I, well, the first time I went to Africa, I'm a pediatrician. I was there for the World Health Organization on this huge conference on women and children. I never saw babies and children mm-hmm. with profound protein malnutrition. It's called kwashiorkor and marasmus. You know the pictures you see of the little mm-hmm. tiny head mm-hmm. and the body that looks like a skeleton? And this is a four-year-old? Mm-hmm. who's the same weight as any one of our Canadian 18-month-olds. As a pediatrician, I, I could not believe seeing this. Now, in sub-Saharan Africa and many other places of the world, this malnutrition is not an acute event. Mm. Their mother is malnourished, their grandmother is malnourished, their great-grandmother is malnourished, their great-grandmother is malnourished. For them... Health and vitality is a foreign concept because debility is the norm. Got it? Got it? Wait, wait. The the, the metaphor, when I I suddenly had this epiphany one night playing with medical metaphors, because this is why if you are enmeshed, there's also research from culture. My good friend, Father Jerry Arbuckle, Father Jerry is a Marist priest from Melbourne, Australia, uh, and he ha- he's a social anthropologist. So Father Jerry will do, will do the same thing, and, and he and I have o- huge overlap from so- social anthropology, but I'm, I'm using the medical metaphor because that's what I know. So what you know about endemic disease is that mm. you don't know you're ill. Right. Mm. And what that absolutely oh. then requires is that others have to help you to see and experience what health and well-being is. But, but this, you know, I think of what, I think it was uh, Pope Francis in the, in the, before the conclave, he, in his speech, he wrote on notes that we've, I believe that was the right, the, the particular time he said, we've become what he called a self-referential church. And he defined that as a church in itself, of itself, for itself. And he said the self-referential church is a sick church, and I think that is a similar definition of an of a, uh, endemic. An, an endemic mindset. Yes, yes. See that the the thing is when the church becomes for itself, then then the mission is no longer the mission of Jesus Christ. The mission is to protect and preserve the institution at all cost, and I think that certainly contributed to the the culture. I mean, I mean, in a sense, the church seems to me, or some leaders in the church reacted in the same way that a, that a family oftentimes would in terms of the issue of shame and protecting her name and let's try to deal with this but let's try to let's try to keep a lid on it and not let it, not let people know about it because our reputation is at stake in fact you are right every once in a while you're right and <laughs> when that happens when that happens I'm more than happy to, uh, to make note yeah. because when it's not I'll also make note <laughs> but uh, th- th- this, is, this, is, this is really important because w- what you need to understand is 
that the protection of image, if, if you look at the history, and I've done this now since the 2012 book in, in detail and repeated adding new stuff. Remember earlier we talked about a cultural response that transcended geographic and physical mm -hmm. and cultural mm -hmm. boundaries? All right. So that response can be characterized. Remember, remember doctors take a history? Yes. And the reason they take the history is to find out clues in how did it start, what made it worse, does anything make it better, right? Mm -hmm. How did it change? D did it progress? That's, that's, that's what you're doing from the history. Clues as to what's going on. So if you look at this issue and you go back to that history, um, what you see is some very interesting responses that are thematic, absolute, and are still continuing. In Remember, two-thirds of the, of the world still doesn't accept that sexual abuse of minors is a sin and a grave social issue. It's only emerging in most other countries of the world. It's not a, it's not a crime. It's not a crime in most of the countries of the world. But what the response was, secrecy, don't talk about it, hmm. silence, denial, either denial that it happened. We even have mothers and fathers who, when the child went to them and said, Father Mark did something the other day in the sacristy. I, I wasn't comfortable. You wash your mouth out with soap. You, you punish their kids mm. because the culture was, my God, don't you dare say a thing like that. Secrecy, silence, denial, minimization of the harm. That's the thing that rots my socks. We know. So when we have, we still have dioceses, a whole bunch in the United States right now, who are trying not to have the statute of limitations re re relieved from this. Talk about a violation of justice. We know that when you are abused as a minor, so children and youth and youth and youth, that in fact it can take years before you can come to, to the stage, uh, even with help, of being able to acknowledge that some of what might have been your lifelong pathology goes back to being uh, abused. It's just, it's the psychological dynamic of this. It's because it happens at such a precious time in human development. So secrecy, silence, denial, minimization of harm, protection of image, protection of offender, protection of that. There was a management strategy of avoidance of scandal. And I just want to finish the, the you know, Father James, you, you, we've talked. Scandal in the biblical sense, a scandal on yes. in the biblical sense, is not reputational loss. It's not, yes. oh God, don't say anything about this because people will think Father John is a sinner. People will think priests are sinners. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Reputational loss. Scandal on in scripture is what Jesus would recognize. Scandal on is a stone. It's Stumbling an obstacle. It, to, to commit scandal in the biblical sense, mm -hmm. is to put an obstruction in the way of the individual mm -hmm. to go to God in their pain. Yep. Wow. Remember the old man in Newfoundland? Yep, that's right. It was a scandal. He couldn't go to God. Yep. How many persons, who, boys oh. and girls, men and women, victim survivors, cannot, they cannot go into a church. I, I have a, a, a victim that I've, I've walked with. He can't even go past a church if there's sunlight that might shine on the stained glass windows, he can't come into the chapel at Caritas, where I, the retirement center where I live, because we have this fantastic, beautiful stained glass window in the chapel of the Assumption. 
And I th- I just love sitting there and watching the light come through. He can't do it. It's flashback. It's PT. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. Thanks for tuning into the first part of our conversation with Sister Nula Kenny. We hope you've enjoyed it. Join us next week for the second part. DR20 brings together parishes and pastors from across the world. This year, every attendee will receive a free year's membership to the Divine Renovation Network, our library of video resources for coaching, leadership, and parish renewal. For more details, go to divinerenovation.org slash DR20.